can have a seat. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, we will be in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to get up and grab one of those. Uh, we will have signage for this at some point in time in the future, making promises. Um, you may notice that we've added some extra curtains. That second cell, for lack of a better word, uh, the second, that's the wrong word. It's because I've been reading church fathers and they talk about cells, not like a jail. It's not the nursing mom's jail at all. There's a room right there that Pastor Joe is pointing to uh, where if you want to go to nurse, you can go on in there. There's some chairs. You can close the curtains, and we'll have some signs there. That was the most awkward way to try and talk about that particular room, but there it is. Um, I will pray for us because we need it, uh, and we will dig in. King Jesus, this is your day, and we are your people. Lord God, you have been preaching the gospel well without Anchor Church. You will continue to preach the gospel well after we are gone. But God, while we're here in Seattle, I pray you would make us salty and bright, that the truth of Jesus would sink into our pores, would permeate our lives, and that Jesus, we would understand that you are the one to enjoy, you are the thing to enjoy, that you've so graciously given us all things, that you've so graciously given us life, that you've so graciously given us yourself, Jesus, and that we would just live in that reality. When the whole world, the static of the day to day is trying to cut us out of that genuine reality we have in you, the life we have in you that you've given us as a gift. And I just pray we'd be open, our eyes would be open to the reality of you, Jesus, your cross, your resurrection, your rule, your reign, your kingdom, your coming, your restoration. Please bless this people, God, in that. We do just want to lift up Greg Eisler to you this morning. Thank you for entering a new uh, member of the family into the world. I pray your blessing on that family and on that boy and that you would glorify yourself through him and you enjoy all the days of his life. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so we're in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 7. Now, there's sort of two ways you can approach this text. This text is at times called, like, the hall of faith. And, and you get this long list of all these heroes. And so kind of what you do is one of the ways to preach through this is you run through the list really quickly. You give enough biographical information to make clear who you're talking about. So Moses did this, and Abraham did this, and Enoch did this, and then he was gone, and then you keep going. And really what you do then is then you take all of those ideas and, and then you say, and now look, and be like these guys. If you have faith like Moses, you can cross the Red Seas in your life and your life will be awesome and great. Uh, and if you're like Noah, you can build the giant wooden boats in the desert of your life and your life will be great. And, and really what it comes is, becomes about is be like these people and do what they did, which actually misses what God's doing through this chapter. The reality of this chapter is we don't stop, start my timer, we'll be here through lunch, uh, we don't stop at Moses, and we don't stop at Abraham, and we don't stop at Sarah, but we look past and see the God they worship, and see the God they know, and understand that God, Jesus, and when we know what they know, when we see what they see, it changes the texture of our life, and empowers us to live our lives for the glory of God, enjoying Him with everything we've got. That it's not just be like Moses, be like Noah. It's have faith. Look at the God that Noah's looking at. Look at the God that Abraham's looking at. And when you see him, this will be the fuel for your worship and it will change everything. Because in reality, it's not about what they did, but the God they worship and what God did. All, all the things we're going to look at are all about what God did. And, and so, okay, so last time I was preaching on this section, we looked at Hebrews verses 11 Verses, verse 11 and 1. Now we have to have that in our minds as we work, continue to work through the, the text because it, it sets the tone. 
And verse 1 in chapter 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And when we hear that, sometimes we think of faith as this is sort of my uh, subjective choice to choose to believe some illogical things. But this word assurance really could be better translated in uh, the Holman standard. It is the word reality. Faith is the reality of things hoped for. Understanding who Jesus is, the God of the universe, who entered into human history to save us from ourselves, from nothing that we've done, but because he's gracious and good, because he made all things good, we broke it. He's coming to fix it. He's the promised one of the Old Testament who's going to do it, comes on the rescue mission, comes as a human being. God himself dies on the cross, saves us from ourselves, gives us life, raises from the dead, forgives us for our sins, and makes us alive together with him. That's amazing. That is the truth of the gospel. And I, I'll quote it one more time because I'm Danish and we have one philosopher. Soren Kierkegaard made the point that as a Christian, there's no more enlightened moment when you come to realize that Jesus is who he says he is. This is not Scientology. This is not working your way up the score, up the levels, but the reality that when you understand who Jesus is, you understand who you are, you understand what the universe is, and you understand more in that moment when you get saved than you will at any other time. Now, you can grow. You you can learn Greek. You can learn Hebrew. You can read big, boring, dusty, old Thomas Aquinas if you want, and you can grow in knowledge, and you can grow in grace, but you're never more awake in that moment that you realize that Jesus is who he says he is and the gospel is real. Now, today we look at Noah, we look at Abraham, and we look at Sarah and their lives and their faith and the things that they did. And in so doing, I think what we begin to see is that these are people who understand that God is king even when he doesn't look like he's king. Because I don't know about the city you live in, but I live right here in this neighborhood. This is home for me. And there are times where you see the kingdom breaking through, and there's times where you just see the brokenness of a broken world, and you just long for Jesus to come and restore it. And then there's times when it doesn't look like he's king. There's times when things are falling apart. But as the people of God, we understand reality that even when it doesn't look like Jesus is king, he is. And this is huge. Uh, One of my favorite old-timey preachers is a guy with an awesome name named Leonard Ravenhill. They don't hand out last names like those anymore, but he has an awesome last name, uh, and he was a contemporary of my very favorite preacher, the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said this phrase. People would say, uh, well, you know, you, y'all need to make sure. Well, he's English. No one said y'all, but there we go. Uh, but people would say, you know, you need to make sure that you're not so heavenly-minded that you have no earthly good. You may have heard that phrase. Lenny He's going to flip it around and say, as Christians, we want to make sure that we're not so earthly-minded, that we're of no heavenly good, that we're not so of the world and the earth and the world systems, that we lack that texture and that quality that makes us salty and bright, the container for the message that Jesus saves sinners from death to life. And I think as we look at these three people, Noah, and we look at Abraham, and we look at Sarah, and we look past them to the God they know and the God they worship, we'll see that they had a heavenly-minded orientation in a world when, honestly, for them, it didn't make any sense. Okay, so let's go ahead and dig in. Verse 7 says this. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah builds a container ship out of gopher wood in the desert for decades. Where I come from, that is a crazy person, right? So here's Noah alone. No one bought into the Noah program, right? Everyone just thought he was crazy, mocked him, ridiculed him, probably. But he keeps going. He keeps obeying. He keeps building. Why? Well, one, he understood he wasn't alone. Jesus says that amazing thing in John's gospel. He tells all the disciples, by the way, y'all are going to ditch me. You have to say y'all because there's no uh, second person plural in English other than y'all, but there it is. You all is how you say it, but you all sounds silly. So y'all are going to ditch me, and I'm going to be left alone. But what did Jesus say after that? But I won't be alone. My heavenly Father is going to be with me. Jesus understood reality because, well, he's the one who made reality. But Jesus understood something Noah in this moment understood. Yes, he's out in the desert. He doesn't go to the, he doesn't go to the ocean. He doesn't go to dry dock. Out in the desert, building a giant boat out of gopher wood. And everybody thinks he's crazy. And he's there and he's alone. And sometimes in our life, when we are following this book and when we're following our God, Jesus, we will be alone and everyone will think what we're doing is crazy. It is a common reoccurring theme in Hebrews. We do things as the people of God that don't make sense to the world. That's actually part of our witness. That's actually part of the evidence that we know the truth of the gospel, which is a message, but that we're living that message out. Uh, I was having lunch with a good friend from the church uh, this week. And he made the observation uh, that Anchor Church is a people who don't just say, how are you doing? But often, and almost everyone says to him in his need or whatever it might be, what do you need? How can I help you? The world's message is king of the mountain. The world's message is survival of the fittest. The church's message is after you. Is what does this person need and how can I serve them? Right? We need to get out of a mentality if you have this mentality, that says the thing that, that, that is coming here to this awesome building, uh, if, if, you, if you weren't at the Boys and Girls Club, this is the, this is the Shangri-La, like a nice, super nice, the Shangri-La in Bellingham where I'm from is not the nicest place, but the real Shangri-La, a very, this is amazing, we're so blessed to be here, but you need to understand that part of the thing that we're doing here is not just to come have people minister to you by preaching. Joe, by the way, I don't know if you heard Joe's sermon last week. That thing was amazing. Praise the Lord for Joe. That was a great, thank you. That was an amazing sermon, right? And if you were here, Joe came and he ministered to you and, and, and musicians ministered to you. But you also need to understand when we come together, we don't, the church doesn't just come together to have people minister to you. We actually come into this time and this place and why it's so important that we get together and we need to all have the mentality of saying, what does this person need? Who, who is God going to hook me up with today to serve? Who needs the truth spoken to them in love? Who needs to be reminded that Jesus has forgiven them from all of their sins and they're a new creature and a new creation in Jesus? Who am I going to have the interaction with today? Who, God, are you going to have serve me? That one's hard for us, right? We actually can, we kind of sometimes like being the person that serves other people, but then when we're in need, it's, it's harder for us to actually get served, by the way. Maybe today someone's going to serve you. Maybe someone's going to remind you of the truth and maybe it's not the guy up here, Right? Because we're the church, right? And that's different than the world. 
It's not me first, it's others first. It's not me in the center, it's God in the center. When God's in the center, I make it my aim in life to love Jesus and love other people with absolutely everything I've got. That is the point. And when we begin to do this, we begin to have a texture and a quality uh, that makes clear in a world that only makes sense to play king of the mountain and get to the top of the mountain, that we're not playing the games of the world. We're following Jesus. We're doing his thing. Uh, as a result of the church, we even try and structure the very nature of our church. The, the, the elders and the members of our church are just trying to dig deeper and deeper into the God's word and say, how, God, do you think a community should be structured? And it's not pragmatic. We're doing what Noah did. Noah's not just got an idea. Maybe I should build a boat. God told him. He gave him explicit instructions on how to do it. By the way, God has told us how to do what we're supposed to do. He doesn't leave his people as orphans. Preach the word in season and out of season. Love one another. Serve one another. Jesus' mandate on what it is to be a servant and to be a leader. Don't do it like the world does it. Mark 10, 45, the place we start with all of our elder pastor, we use those words synonymously, elder pastor candidates. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus says in response to that, y'all do it differently. He washes people's feet. Do what I'm doing. He washes people's feet. And it's right here. And so we listen to this and we follow this. And it's not always pragmatic and it's not always easy. But we trust Jesus more than ourselves. But Noah knew this, right? Because God's bigger and greater than he is. He understands how big and faithful and loyal God is. And then it says this. Back in 7. By God concerning events yet unseen. He had no scientific, tangible evidence that there was a flood coming. But he had God's word. He trusted God more than his own eyes. He trusted God more than the mockers. He trusted God. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And it says something interesting. By this he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, I don't think that means that God and, uh, and Noah sit judging the world together. Um, in fact, we're told in Genesis there in 6, uh, and then in the middle of 6 where the Noah story starts, that there was just violence, that, that God had made everything good and human beings had broke it and they broke it good. And these human beings that he created to be his image bearers, to glorify his name, to worship him, it says we're only doing violence. And that God was grieved that he had made them. But it says a very interesting thing. It says the same thing about Noah, if you remember from two weeks ago with Enoch, that it says about Enoch, and that's that Noah walked with God. Now what's amazing about Noah walking with God is that we don't know that much about Noah, right? We get a very, the Bible always gives us a condensed, select narrative. What does Noah do when he gets done with the ark? He plants a vineyard and he gets loaded. That's what he does, right? He's not necessarily the model of behavior all the time. But guess what? No one is except for Jesus. But it does say that he was friends with God, that he walked with God. So what makes Noah a righteous man is not that he walked in complete, and per, in complete perfection, but that he walked with God, that God was his righteousness, that God was his justifier. Now it says that God condemned the world, meaning he, he decides to wash it clean from all the violence and all the nastiness and all the hate and all the objectification and all of it. Now, 
why does it say then that Noah condemned the world? I, I think what it means here is the kind of indictment that comes from being a friend of God from time to time. That, that Noah's life in and of itself was an indictment uh, of the lives and behavior and the violence and the nastiness because he's the only one that listens. And, and frankly, this can be us sometimes. There, this happens as a Christian as we're following Jesus. Uh, our very behavior becomes an indictment. Even when you're not being a jerk. You work at the restaurant. All your buddies want to go while out. You say, no, thank you. I'm not into carousing. Uh, no, thanks. You don't give them a lecture. You don't do anything. Well, why not? Come on, man. You're such a square. You're such a drag. Well, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I love him. And that's different than the way I roll, because I roll with, him. I roll with the king. He, he's my God. He's the one I follow. And, and it's always a surprise to me, even when you're not being a jerk about it, how much this can feel like an indictment on other people, how much they can feel it in their own conscience. Like, oh, what, you're too good to whatever? No, I'm just saying I'm following Jesus. I'm going with him on it. That's all. Uh, we live in a city, you know, just like Noah's got this ark, this rescue boat, right? Uh, when we were setting out signs, when Joe and I were driving around setting out signs, our, our friends at Green Lake Press, great folks at Green Lake Press, love those guys. Uh, Mike Kelly and his team, just, just awesome dudes. And they're down the hill, so their sign's on the same corner as our sign. And, and, and then you look up and you see another church, Rock of Ages, just down the street, Bible-believing folks. Uh, God, in his grace and mercy, has positioned lifeboats all over the city where people are saying, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, believe, have life. There's more to life than the things you're chasing. Jesus saves, be saved. And, and we go and we, we disperse from here, right? You're going to go to work. Or, or to the playground, uh, or to school, or wherever. And God has sent his ambassadors, that's you, on a rescue mission to this city to tell people the truth about who Jesus is. Right? Hey, have friendships. Go to shows. Do whatever. Don't wait two years to tell someone that you know who Jesus is. They are drowning now. And he sent us out. And he sent us out to carry this message that Jesus saves and there's life. The message, the reality that God himself entered into human history, died in our place, his death so we can have life, drank the cup so I don't have to, paid the price so I'm forgiven for sins. And the reality that you and I, if you are a Christian, are washed clean from everything. You are clean. Not just from the stuff that you did before you met Jesus, but the stuff after the fact. That you are clean in Jesus. That he has washed you clean by his blood and you are his ambassadors. He's reconciled the world through the church. That's you. That's an indictment. And I think just like in Luke 17, there's a story of Lazarus and the rich man. Only guy in a parable that gets a name, by the way. Lazarus, this poor, poor, poor soul. And the rich man. The rich man's condemned and says, well, let me go and tell my family let me go and tell someone. They, they got to know. And the response he gets is, don't they have Moses? Don't they have the Bible? Don't they have the truth? I think so often we can almost have this mentality, if God would just do something big, then I'd believe. He has done something big. He's entered into human history. He's walked among us. 
He, he's had pain the way we've had pain. He's been alone the way you've been alone. He's been tempted the way you've been tempted. And he died in your place to make you right with God, to crush the beef between yourself and God. God has done something huge. He rose from the dead. He's ruling and reigning as we speak. God has done something huge. His name is Jesus. He's given us his word, which is the truth. And yeah, he could show up and jump, do a loop-de-loop through rings of fire and shoot fireworks out of his fingertips. But then if he's doing circus tricks for you, then you're God and he's not. He's God. And I tell you what, if you're not a Christian, be saved. This is the truth. And if you don't know him, I have so many stories of people who simply open this book. We have paperbacks. It's a paperback, right? But in there are the words of life. Who opened this book and said to a God, they're not really sure exists, and said, God, if you're real, will you show yourself to me? And started in Matthew. Sure enough, that's the testimony of so many people. I know they just read like, Whoa, God's real. Jesus is real. This is the truth. Help me, save me, forgive me. Be saved. Be saved. There's nothing you can do to earn it. He's the one that does the saving. Okay, let's go to verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Sometimes God calls us to do crazy things that don't even make sense and we don't even know where it's going to land. That's beautiful. It's beautiful because the reality is you have to trust him and you have to let him be God in the situation. We're really bad at letting God be God. We usually want to control things, make backup plans. And, well, you know, if God, if God misses on this one, at least I've got the backup plan over here. Backup plans, that's not the gospel call. That's not the gospel call. Abraham is, by, for all intents and purposes, he's a Babylonian for sure, and I believe he's a pagan. He's worshiping pretend gods. Now, I always want to be careful. I'm, I'm presuming that. Because we get clear evidence that his dad, Terah, his dad, Terah, is a pagan. Exodus tells us so. It doesn't explicitly say Abraham was, but I'm presuming there. So Abraham, this Babylonian pagan, is sitting around, and the God of the Bible, the true God of the universe, Yahweh, speaks and says, pack up all your stuff and let's go. He doesn't know where he's going, but he believes. And in faith, he goes, and he trusts. He packs up all his stuff, gets his bum nephew lot, and they go. And they go. This, this is us. Uh, Luke 18, we don't have time to go there, uh, but it's an amazing, there's this amazing comparison. There's this rich young ruler. And we need to pay careful attention as comfortable, cozy, air-conditioned uh, Americans that we pay attention to the story. Because what happens with the rich young ruler? This is the remix, paraphrase, etc., etc., etc. I don't know how to say it. I'm not quoting the Bible directly. I'm just telling you the story. Rich young ruler shows up to Jesus. What must I do to inherit the kingdom? Well, follow the law. Follow the Ten Commandments. Oh, those I've kept from my youth. Honor my father and mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Done it, done it. Check, 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 check. So he's done the work. He says, okay. Sell everything you have and follow me. Because Jesus knew how much he loved his stuff. Right? He's doing all the right stuff to check the boxes. Our life in Jesus isn't about checking boxes. 
It's about loving Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about being forgiven by Jesus. It's about glorifying Jesus. Not about checking boxes. I mean, what? So helpful. God is so helpful. Thief dying on the cross next to Jesus is the first Christian in the kingdom. There's other saints, of course, before, but the church. The, the, this church is started with this guy dying on a cross who starts by making fun of Jesus, dying on the cross, and ends up dying while the other guy's pushing him around and says, hey, leave him alone. You and I know we both deserve to be here, but not this guy. Remember me in your kingdom. What does Jesus say to him? He says, so make sure you get down from here. Make sure you don't watch any more rated R movies. Uh, make sure you get a quiet time in. Uh, make sure you have good church attendance. Uh, make sure you clean your life up. What does Jesus say? doesn't say any of those things. Today you will be with me in paradise. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. Jesus. Amazing. This is, this is the first cat in the kingdom. That guy. It's not about getting your life cleaned up first. It's about being rescued. It's about when he's far, you don't say, these are the steps I have to do to get closer to Jesus, but say, Jesus, come and get me. Oh, man, when I'm having dry seasons in my life, when I try and micromanage my, my if I just, I got to do this more and do that more and do this more, that never gets me anywhere, to be totally honest. You send the moments where you just cry out to Jesus. You feel far. I feel lonely. It feels dark. It feels dry. How faithful is he to come and get us? Faithful. James promises those who draw near to God, he will draw near to them. Drawing near to God looks like this. I have empty hands. Come and get me. If you're feeling dry in God today, don't try and micromanagement. Don't try and figure it out. Cry out to him. There's nothing more important. Take the time. Take all night if you have to cry out to him. Call out to him. Help me. Save me. You love me. Come, Jesus, help me. That's the truth. Now, what's interesting is the rich young ruler is, is this, Luke loves to do these things. They're all couplets. He loves to put two stories together to kind of have a conversation with each other. And the immediate next story is that of Zacchaeus. You know the Zacchaeus story? If you were ever in Sunday school, which I wasn't, everybody's got some song I don't know. I'm not, I'm not in the club. But apparently it was we, and there was a tree. I think it was made out of sycamore, because I have a Bible. I cheat because I got the Bible. But I missed out on kids' ministry, sorry. So all we know about Zacchaeus is he's short. And what does Jesus do to Zacchaeus? The kiss, I'm coming to your house for dinner. What? He's a tax collector. You know what a tax collector is? Tax collectors rip people off to supply money to a hegemonic, colonial, violent force that's oppressing the people of God in Judea and profiting off of it. So guess what? He doesn't have any friends other than other tax collectors who are also ripping people off and giving their money to hegemonic, colonial power. What does Zacchaeus do? He doesn't have to be asked to sell his things. Because Jesus, Jesus the, the dude was sad and it says Jesus, Jesus knew that he had many possessions. What does Zacchaeus do? He says, I'm going to pay everybody back that I ripped off and I'm going to give half, away, half of everything away because I got Jesus. And Jesus became of more value. Uh, to follow Jesus means leaving everything behind. Uh, Zach's got that amazing song he sings. I think somebody else might sing it too, but I know Zach does it. Uh, the cross before me, the world behind me. That was just such a great thing to enter into the culture of our community. Amazing, amazing, amazing song he does, right? The, the cross before me, the world behind me. Jesus, in, all I want is Jesus. That's all I want. And Abraham, now here's the wild thing about Abraham, as we're going to see. 
They get to see this thing from afar. Abraham doesn't know his name is Jesus. We don't find that out for thousands of years later. But he trusts God and he knows there's more in following God than following the world. And he goes and he packs up his stuff and he goes. Verse 9. One more Abraham. By faith he went to live in the land of the promise as a, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Uh, so a couple things that's happening, that are happening here. Um, so why are Isaac and Jacob mentioned? They're his kids. If, if, you, don't, if you don't know the story, that's not a problem. But, but Abraham gets this promise from God. I'm going to give you the promised land. And so Abraham lives in some tents. And he has a kid. His name's Isaac. And they live in some tents. And then Jacob gets born. And they live in some tents. And then everybody ends up down in Egypt. All they own in the promised land is a graveyard. And all they're going to do is take some bones back with them. It's a little bit weird. Uh, but it is there. So they end up in Egypt. By the time Exodus kicks in, they don't have the promised land. They're far away. And in fact, they're slaves in Egypt. Where was that promise? Where was the promise? What does God say in Exodus 3? If you read it, the way God identifies himself hundreds of years later to Moses, I am the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hey, remember those? He's saying, hey, remember those promises I made? Remember those promises I made? And imagine being Abraham. He's living in a foreign land. It's really, really clear what it means here. He's living as a stranger in a foreign land. When I go to your house, if you have a shoes off rule, I will obey your shoes off rule. And I will ask nicely if I'm going to dig in your fridge. I won't even dig in your fridge. I live as a foreigner in your house. I'm not that guy, right? In my house, it's a shoes off house, but I'll be honest, the shoes don't always come off. And I don't have any problem digging in my own fridge, right? There's a comfort that comes with home. And so here's Abraham in a place that God said, this is all yours. And he's living as a foreigner. This is us, by the way. He who did not spare his own son, will he not graciously give us all things? As Christians, we understand that the heaven is it's kind of portrayed in culture, wings and angels and stuff. Golf, not, I don't know, I always say not golf for eternity. Sounds like the other place. Okay, so they're there. Every time I think about it, I think of that one, so I say it every time, and then you're stuck with it. There you go. That's the intermediate state. God is coming to put this world back the way it's supposed to be. He's coming to put this place back the way it's supposed to be. And he says, he who gave us his son, is he not so graciously going to give us all things? That as Christians, we're in the inheritors of all things, of everything. And what do we see in the book of Revelation? The amazing thing that we do with everything. The elders before the throne of God, what do they do with their crowns? Their diadems, which is the cool way to say it, which is just cool way to say crown. They're there with their crowns and what do they do? They throw them at the feet of Jesus. And so he gives us everything and we, what do we do with everything? We say Jesus, you're better than everything. Jesus, you're the one I want. Jesus, you're the one I enjoy. Jesus, you're it because he is. And so we live this way just like Abraham. Now it gives us the reason why he's able to do it and put up with it. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Now, this is where we have to do a little bit of what's called biblical theology, and that's where you take everything that gets said in the book and you apply it, and so you say, well, what else did the author of Hebrews say about cities? He said that there's a king, his name's Melchizedek, which, he's a weird guy, but Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's the king of Jerusalem, or Zion, as the Old Testament said, the city of God. So when we think city, because 
uh, I want to embarrass you. We just had a mayoral, mayoral election, so you may know who's the mayor right now, but two years from now, you're going to probably forget his name, even though you should be praying for him, according to First uh, Timothy. Um, so you, you don't really necessarily say Seattle and the mayor. He's the guy, because he's going to get voted out at some point in time. Whatever. I'm, I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying, at some point in time, somebody else will be the mayor. But in the old days, in the Old Testament, place and king are the same, Right? We want the kingdom of God because we want the king. His name's Jesus. He's looking forward to the city, but he's not just looking forward to a city. He's looking forward to the king of the city, the priest of the order of Melchizedek, Jesus. Now, he doesn't have all the information yet, but he's looking down the pipe of history and forward to it. So he knows that God is good on his promises and that God is going to fulfill the Genesis 3 promise because the author of Hebrews has us stuck here in Genesis. We're in like Genesis, I don't know, like 15 right now, right? So last week, or last time I was in Hebrews, we did the first, oh, I don't know, fifth, and we're moving on to the first third of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So we're taking it nice and easy. But, but the thing is that he looks forward to the city and knows it's coming. Verse 13. Oh, man, we've got to hurry. Verse 11, sorry. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Now, it says an interesting thing, and it's there in the Greek, too. It says Sarah herself. Why does it say Sarah herself received the power to conceive? Because Abraham and Sarah, if you read Genesis, cook up a few plans other than the one that God had in mind, which includes, hey, we need a baby. Hey, I have this uh, midwife here, or not midwife, pardon me, this uh, maidservant here. And Abraham being, well, will it be this, this other guy? Why? Because they're both really, really old. The thing that gets reiterated again and again in Genesis throughout the whole Bible and here in this text is they're both really, really old, and God promised to give them a baby, and they know how science works, and they know at some point in time you can't have babies anymore, and they know they're past the time of having babies, but God makes a promise nonetheless. So Sarah herself conceived, not Hagar, her uh, maidservant. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. Oh, whoa, skipped a spot, sorry. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. Since she considered, it's nice, Sarah's really old, and they just say she's past the age. They're in a second going to say that Abraham's as good as dead. So they say nice things about his wife. Abraham doesn't get off as easily. Um, Hey, hey, the Bible's classy, hey. Uh, therefore, from one man, uh, now I lost my place, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, what's amazing about Sarah is, as you know, she has this whole girlfriend plan with Hagar. Oh, you might know that, but it's in there. It's more exciting than you'd realize. Um, at some point in time, she actually believes, and at some point in time, she actually has evidence of God's faithfulness, a little boy, a baby named Isaac. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, there it is, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the immeasurable grains in the sand of the seashore. Now, what I think is interesting here, I need to do more study because a simple word search, just typing some stuff into a computer isn't always going to do this. But it's my observation. This is, we'll test the theory. We're doing a little theoretical here, right? It's my observation in the Old Testament, whenever the, this promise is called fulfilled, it seems like to me, and if you find it, let me, seriously, send me an email. I'm, I'm looking for it. It seems to me that every time it's a human being saying, see, look, the people of God are as numerous as the seashore, but then how does Luke's gospel, if you know your Bible, if you're a Bible nerd like me, or just hopefully a Bible reader, it's amazing, you should read it. How does Luke's gospel start? How does Jesus get born in Bethlehem, if you've ever heard that? A census. What's a census? It's where they count everybody. Well, even Hebrews thinks they're going to be innumerable. 
So Jesus comes on the scene as a baby, and they're counting all of God's people. What does that mean? Promise ain't fulfilled yet. That's what it means. But what do we see in the book of Revelation? Every tribe and tongue and a multitude that cannot be counted. That this promise is ultimately not just about Abraham getting some people and some land, but about Abraham being the descendant, Jesus being the descendant of Abraham, and, a- and Jesus doing this restorative work in the world with the people of God, I think. But if you find the spot, seriously, I'm looking for it. Email me. I'm pushing on it. So, seriously. Uh, okay. These all dead in faith, not having received the things promised, ha- uh, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So they, they see the truth of what God, God's doing down on the horizon of history, on the horizon of redemptive history, on the horizon of, of God's work. The things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged, verse 13, that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Because when you're clued into reality, when you have these lenses on, when you have a heavenly mind, you will be of, when you have a, and I'm going to screw up the quote, there it is. When we have these heavenly lenses, we understand reality. And honestly, this place, as much as it can feel like home, isn't a home. Right? You can have all the money in the world, and it's still going to come up empty. You can have all the friends on the internet that you can handle and it still comes up empty. And you can have all the security and all of this and all of that and all of this. And as everybody will show us, no one beats the American dream. You can try and you can run. You can run around the cul-de-sac. And I'm not saying, you know, don't get after it. I'm just saying don't let it be your identity. Don't be the, let it be the thing that drives you because it's going to come up empty again and again because we're strangers. For people who speak thus... Make it clear. I was just talking with someone about how the ESV says weird things, and there's one of them, thus. I don't have to use the word thus in your language, but there it is. Those who speak thus, or this way, those who speak thus, I got lost in the thus. Those who speak, strangers, exiles, there we go. Uh, Make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking that the land from which they had gone out, uh, they would have had opportunity to return. If they were going to find their comfort, their fulfillment, their wholeness on earth, Abraham could have just gone back to Babylon. Right? Moses could have just hung out in Pharaoh's court. They could have just gone for the, you could just buy the leather couch, throw on the Seinfeld, and hit cruise control for the rest of your life. God wants more for you. Don't settle. Don't settle for less. Don't settle for the things of the world. There's so much more available to you in Jesus than that. It's already yours because of the cross. Romans 8, the greatest chapter on the Holy Spirit. God has taken up residence inside of you in the Holy Spirit. Don't hit cruise control. He's given you the people of God, the church. This thing is a miracle. Blood-bought sinner saints loving one another, speaking heavenly truths to each other about Jesus. Don't hit cruise control. There's leather couches everywhere to sit down on. There's bigger and bigger and bigger TVs and faster internet and better jobs and faster boats and nicer cars. Don't settle. They're empty. I'm not saying don't have a car. Have a car. 
but it's not it. And every time you try to make it, it, it ain't going to work. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Reoccurring theme in the whole Bible. God is really stoked when people live like God is God. Chronicles. They're coming for us. The people of God in the city, they come to God and say, our hands are empty and you're God. What do we do? And he says, I got it. Boom. That's, that's our life. Every morning, get out of bed. Well, you don't have to, I'm not telling you to do this. I'm saying this is what you can do, right? This is in your righteousness. It's a great thing. Jesus, you're God, I'm not. I'm your servant. Use me today however you see fit. I trust you. I love you. Please help me. He's really faithful to answer that prayer. It's really hard to try and be God in your life. It is exhausting, and it's a waste. Jesus is a much better God than you or I am. Okay, so we're to live for more. Right? That's what they did. They lived for more because they understood because they understood that Jesus' truth is the real truth. The world's going to sell you a thousand truths. They're not the truth. They sound really formal on NPR. A PhD sounds really good. And then you get there and you're like, man, PhDs have to read a lot of books. But he's just a dude, right? God's truth is the truth. Jesus' truth is the better truth. Jesus' value is the better value. You can sell your life and your soul trying to climb the corporate ladder, trying to be somebody, trying to be made into something somewhere. And then it's empty. Jesus' rest is the only rest. Yeah, leather couch is great, whatever. And then it gets weird and your skin sticks to them, whatever. They wear out. I don't watch much TV. With watching TV, somebody rolls up to sell a car, a 1985 Rolls-Royce. In 1985, it was the nicest car you can have. And what was it? It was a piece of junk. That's a rest that wears out. Hebrews told us earlier that the people of God waiting at the edge of the desert didn't enter because of their unbelief. They didn't believe the rest they were going to get in God. So often, we don't believe the rest we have in Jesus. How can you know you don't believe the rest in, you have in Jesus? At any point in time, if you find yourself saying the phrase in your own head, I know God has forgiven me, but I could never forgive myself. Well, you don't believe it. You don't believe it. The gospel is you're free. The gospel is you have life. The gospel is you're cleansed. The gospel is rest in Jesus. And Jesus promises the only promises. Peter says, don't count slowness as some count slowness. God's not slow to him. A day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day. Sometimes we don't think God is on our timeline. He's on his timeline because he's God. And it's a good deal. Uh, and the reality is in all this, uh, if we are not living for more, we're ultimately going to live for less. When we don't believe there's more in the gospel and more in Jesus, you're just going to chase something else. And again and again and again. Money and power and objectification will all come up empty. But the amazing thing is that we have Jesus. Right? You don't have to like try and figure it out. You just 
Stop getting after it. Start getting after him. We have Jesus who's true and Jesus who is rest and Jesus who is the fulfillment of the promises. Every, every yes to every promise of the Old Testament. So then we get to worship and know him and enjoy him and understand that everything he has made, he has made. And we get to write all these things up in thankfulness and gratitude to him. And the whole point of glorifying him is knowing him and loving him and enjoying him and loving other people. And we get to do that because he's so good and he's so wonderful. And so it's not just about Noah or Abraham or Sarah, but the God they see and how that changes the very nature and structure of our own lives. The point of your life is to enjoy him, point to him, and know him, and love him. If you don't know him, this is the truth. You can't earn it. You can't clean yourself up. You can't do the things to make him love you. First John promises he loves us first. Right in the mess and the muck and the mire and the moss and the fog and the junk of your life. And man, if you feel far from him right now, draw near. My two-year-old put his hands up. He wants to be held. I say, come on over. He can walk, right? Puts his hands up. Turns out he needs me to come and get him. He can walk. Sometimes we just need to be able to stand there. I need you. I can't. I can't even walk. Come get me. You came down for me once. Come down for me again. And man, all of us, we have so much to celebrate and so much to worship. We have so much life in Jesus that we should stand and we should sing and we should praise his holy name. Because he's given us everything. And more than anything, he's given us his son, Jesus. God's amazing. Let's pray. Uh, King Jesus. Lord, praise your holy name. Everything I have comes from you. Everything we have comes from you. You even just saved us to just hit cruise control. You've saved us for joy and life and glory. Praise your name. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Help us to love each other the way you've loved us. Help us to love the city the way you loved us. Help us to be patient and kind and gracious and carry the message that you save. Help us to love this city well in the gospel. Please, God, help us just to love you more, to love each other more, and to walk in your ways and to live for your glory. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.